The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now let me start here today by asking you, how many of you have a Bible with you this morning? Would you hold your Bibles up? Oh, very good. All across the congregation, looks like just about everybody has a Bible. I don't know how many people that we have in the room today, and, and we don't have that all that big of a crowd, but I can tell you this, I know for sure that there are churches in our area that may have 500 people or 1,000 people or even 2,000 people in their services today, and there won't be as many Bibles as there are in here. There won't be. And people are just amazed. And I'll get to this in just a moment. Amazed that they would come to a place like this and still hear preaching from the Bible. But we do preach from it. We think that people need to hear what God has to say. In fact, this is the only place you'll ever meet God is in the pages of Scripture. I was listening to someone yesterday. And this, I'm dragging my message out here, so forgive me. But I was listening to something yesterday. Uh, a fellow said he was talking about all these people that claim they get revelations from God and God spoke to them and all these kinds of things. He said, if you want to hear God speak, then read your Bible. And if you want to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud. So. All right, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And today's topic is one of those very unusual events in the ministry of Jesus. This is about a curse that he put on a fig tree. And that seems to be a very strange thing for Jesus to do because we're always thinking about Jesus and his ministry of healing people, doing good things for people, all the folks that followed him around that were, uh, he, he was the only help for them. And we would think this is, this is really a strange thing to do that Jesus would come to an inanimate object and he would speak to it and he would curse a fig tree. And yet everything that Jesus did had a very definite purpose to it. I mean, there was nothing that he did that didn't have some meaning to it. And this is very important, a very important incident uh, that fits in with all of the events that take place in the last week of his life. This forms a very logical progression of those events. Now, if you look in your Bible at Matthew 21 and verse number 18, if you'd stand up and, uh, as we read God's Word... Uh, Again, a very odd thing that this is the last miracle that Jesus did before he went to the cross, the last recorded miracle, and it had to be a fig tree that he cursed. Verse number 18, now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered, and when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Father, thank you for your word, and we do thank you, Lord, for all the Bibles that we have today, and 
we open up your word to hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In just a few months, in the month of April, my wife and I will celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. And we were talking just, uh, just the other day uh, about how time has passed so quickly. And it doesn't seem like it's been all that many years since we were married. Uh, time just flies by so, just so quickly. But I think back sometimes to uh, things that we did when we were uh, married, when we were first married, and even back to times before we were married. I can, I can think back to those times, and maybe some of you can as well. And as I think back on that, I remember that one thing that was particularly true about my wife, and that was how she felt about her makeup. That when we were dating, she didn't want me to see her without her makeup. And still today, you, you're, you're not going to catch her hardly ever outside of the house at a public place without wearing her makeup. And as we all know, today the cosmetic industry is a multi-billion dollar industry in, in the United States and around the world. And that's because nobody wants to show what's really underneath Now, with my wife, I I didn't really care about that because she's beautiful to me whether she has her makeup on or whether she's not wearing it doesn't matter. For others of you, I'm glad that you're wearing a disguise and you might keep keep that up. But she was very, very particular about wearing her makeup. And really, if you want to nail down the meaning of this passage, that's pretty much it. It's covering up or putting something over another thing to make it appear what it's really not. This is, this is a lesson about hypocrisy, and Jesus had a very vivid way of demonstrating his disgust with hypocrisy, especially the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. So this is what we're going to talk about, about today. Uh, the lesson of the fig tree is perfectly consistent with the activities of the Lord that he went through in the final week of his life leading up to the crucifixion of Calvary. Now, I'd like for us to um, um, back up just a, just a little bit to kind of get into the flow of this passage. And, and this is really the value of verse-by-verse study because if we were to just pick this particular passage up and land on it on a Sunday morning without any explanation of what's gone on before, then we really wouldn't understand it very well. Now, this is not an arbitrary thing that Jesus did when he came to a fig tree and he cursed it. And it doesn't really make much sense unless we look at it in the light of what's already taken place. Now, I believe that we are discussing here the events of Monday of the Passion Week, and that's a little bit hard for us to figure out by reading Matthew's account. And so we can go to the book of Mark and we can find out that this this incident took place over a period of two days. Now, Mark lists his material in a chronological fashion, whereas Matthew arranges things topically. And so we really can't pick out the days and how this happened too well unless we look in other places like going to the book of Mark. So Mark says this took place over two days. Now, you remember what Jesus did on Monday. He left the city on Sunday night. And that was after the triumphal entry on Sunday morning. He came into the city to the shouts of the people. He rode in on that donkey with the palm branches and all of that. And then he left the city and he returned on Monday morning. And when he came into the temple, he found that there were people that were busy buying and selling and all the things that were were going on there. 
Now, what happened on Monday morning when Jesus came into the city is what we're reading right here in Matthew uh, 21 in these verses, in these 18 and uh, 19, 20 and so on. This is what happened on that Monday morning, that Jesus passed by this fig tree and he cursed it. And then on Tuesday, he and the disciples came back by it again and the tree had withered away. So we remember what Jesus did on Sunday. He, there was the triumphal entry. On Monday, Jesus came by the fig tree. Then he went to the temple, and there he found the worship of the temple was in a deplorable state. And so in a symbolic gesture of what he will do in the last day, Jesus cleansed the temple. In showing that what he will do in the last day, that he would purge Israel of their false worship and he would bring in a new temple where all nations of the world can come and worship him in truth and in righteousness, Jesus showed that by driving the money changers out of the temple. And the idea of that is that God is not satisfied with the wrong kind of worship. And you need to be very much aware of that. God is not satisfied with the wrong kind of worship. Worship is not something that we invent. It's not something for our pleasure. It's not something to make us feel good. Worship is all about God. And Jesus was not pleased with the worship of Israel because it was a self aggrandizing type of worship. As we discover the meaning of this action, uh, let's first look at the problem of this tree. What is the problem of the tree? Well, the problem is there is foliage, but there is no fruit. Now, on Monday morning, as Jesus returned to the city, he made a two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. And I can tell you that's not an easy walk. Bethany lies on the backside of the Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem. And so Jesus would have had to ascend the mountain, cross over it, start down the other side, and then he would go across the Kidron Valley, and then he would go back up again in order to get into the city. Now that tells us something about Jesus, that he must have been a very robust, healthy man. Now, Jesus did something early in the morning that I couldn't do, or any other part of the day for that matter. I mean, I couldn't do what Jesus did. He walked up and down that hilly terrain around Jerusalem. And, and more than just hilly, that's kind of a mountainous area. A lot of elevation changes there. And Jesus did it seemingly with ease, never having a complaint about it. Now, we do have to remember about Jesus that he was a man. And for some morning on this, re, uh, on this morning, he didn't have his breakfast and... He was very hungry as he made that strenuous walk. Now, even though he did come from Bethany, which is the home of his very good friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, it may be that Jesus did not spend the night there. But he may have done what he did many times, and that was just to camp out on the hillside and sleep under the stars. And so when he got up in the morning, he was very hungry, and he would have had to find something to eat. Well, as he was walking along, Mark tells us that he saw this fig tree from a good ways off, and the fig tree was full of foliage. The tree was already covered with leaves, and that was an unusual sight because in those elevations around the Mount of Olives, at that time of the year, which is April, the, the fig trees would not normally have their leaves. But that caught Jesus' attention that as he was walking along in the distance, he saw this tree that was full of 
uh, of leaves. I mean, it was all covered. Now, I, I don't know a lot about fig trees, but, but I have read that there's a peculiar property about them, and that is with a fig tree, the fruit appears before the leaves. And so if you saw a fig tree that had leaves on it, you would be sure that you would find figs also because the figs come first. And that's what Jesus saw from the distance. There was a fig tree in full foliage, a tree that should have had figs on it. And so he hungrily approached that tree, but he found that the tree was deceptive because there were no figs on it. Now, before we get into the significance of what that means in the illustration, let me just say this again, that Jesus was hungry, and that shows that he was fully man. Now, he had to make that hard walk up and down the mountain, and he was hungry just as you and I would be hungry. He needed nourishment. Now, I remember uh, taking a walk up Mount St. Helena about two years ago, and I just barely made it up there. And there were times when I think I wasn't going to make it. And, and I was hungry, I was tired, and I, I, I felt like I really needed something to eat. I need some nourishment to help me get through that. Well, we read these kinds of things about Jesus, that he was a man. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was in the wilderness. He was without food for many days, and the Bible says that he was hungry. In John chapter 4, he came to the well of Jacob's well at Sychar, and the Bible says that he sat down on the well because he was tired, because he was weary. Later in the week, Jesus will hang on the cross, and you remember that cry that he made from the cross? He said, I thirst, and Jesus thirsted because he was a man. Although he was 100% God, he was a man. He was physically a man. He had all the physical characteristics of man because he was fully human. And Christ's humanity is a, is a very important thing to us because only by being a man could Jesus feel the things that we go through. Only by being a man could he understand the weaknesses of our human flesh. Only in his body could he be tempted as we're tempted and yet overcome all of those temptations. And only in a body could he actually feel things about sin because God knows nothing about a personal feeling of sin. God can't feel that, nor can God die. And so all of those things are necessary for Jesus to be a man. He had to go through the things of a man in order to be our Savior. Now, there are many people that overlook the dichotomy between the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and what they'll do lots of times is overemphasize his deity at the expense of the humanity. And then there are others that overemphasize his humanity at the expense of his deity. You have people like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses that understand nothing about the deity of Jesus Christ, and very little do they understand about his humanity. Now, we do have to admit, we can't understand it fully because we've never seen anything like this before. He was 100% man and 100% God. And whether we can understand it or not, we must believe it because the Bible says that it's true. And if it's not true, we can't have a Savior. If it's not true, then Jesus was an imposter when he claimed to be God. He has to be 100% man and 100% God because only in that way could he save us from our sins and reconcile us to the Heavenly Father. So Jesus hungered. And that's why he came to the fig tree looking for food. He arrived there. 
He saw the leaves from the distance, and when he came, he found that there were no figs. And so he cursed the tree, and he caused it to die. And right there in one act, he showed both his humanity and his deity. The humanity is seen in the hunger. His deity is shown in the power that he had over nature. Well, what does this mean? Why do we have this story? Why did Jesus do it? Well, first of all, the, the fig tree is an illustration of the sorry condition of Israel. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that Israel is often compared to a vine or to a fig tree. Uh, and I'm sure you're uh, very familiar with the vine illustrations that are found in Scripture because the Bible talks a lot about vineyards and a healthy well-producing vineyard was always a sign of prosperity. So God often used the vine to show that Israel was not as prosperous and productive as it should have been. And so instead, he compared it to a wild vine, a vine that didn't produce the right kind of fruit or a vine that had no fruit at all, a vine with fruit that's no good. And a vine without fruit is useless. A vine, a grape vine around here without grapes on it is useless, isn't it? I mean, you can't do anything with a vine. You can't build anything out of it. The wood of a vine is not any good for building. So if a vine is not producing fruit, what they do is they uproot that vine and they burn it. They destroy it. And even then it doesn't make a very good fire. So it's really not in use unless there, are, there is fruit on the vine. Well, the fig tree is also used to speak of productivity. And there were abundance. There was an abundance of fig trees in Israel. There were so many there that it was called the poor man's fruit. So if anybody was hungry, there were so many fig trees in Israel that you just go find one and you're sure to find some figs on there. They're all over the place. So if you're hungry, you go there. So these well-producing vines and well-producing fig trees, that's a sign of prosperity. But there's something else that the Scripture also shows us concerning them, that vines and fig trees were often symbols of judgment also. For example, in Revelation, it talks there about God harvesting the vines and casting the wicked into the winepress of his wrath. And listen, listen to how he includes the fig tree in that metaphor. Uh, back in Jeremiah 8.13, Old Testament he says, I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. And the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. In Hosea 2, verse number 12, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. Of course, there he's speaking about false gods and people that worship them. He said, I will make them a forest, and as beasts of the field, the beasts of the field shall eat them. So destroying vines and fig trees was a symbol of judgment on Israel. And so here in this passage, Jesus shows what would happen to Israel. He came and he found them like this fig tree. They were full of foliage. From a distance, they looked holy and righteous, especially coming down from the Mount of Olives. If you come down from there, you see off in the distance the temple. You would have seen the temple gleaming in the sunlight as it stood on the Temple Mount. Now, today you see something very, very much different. You see a, you see a mosque with a golden dome there, unfortunately. 
uh, and it glistens in the sunlight. But, but for Israel, and at the time of Jesus, you would walk down that mountain, and there you would see the temple often in the distance, and you would surely think that when I get into the city, I'm going to find the people of God there. There was a lot of worship that went on. Sacrifices were being made. There was a lot that was happening at the temple, but there was no fruit there. When Jesus went into the temple, he didn't find what was supposed to be there. Instead, he found this hypocrisy. He found a pretend religion. So all of the hypocrisy is there, and Jesus, in a parable, asked his disciples, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in Israel? And the answer to that question is no, he did not find faith. He found something else, the horrible, deplorable condition of the religious leaders. Now back in the sixth chapter, in verse number five, we have an example of that. Uh, Jesus said, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. And there he's speaking of religious leaders. Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In the 23rd chapter, verse number 5, he says, But all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. So the works of the religious leaders and of others were hypocritical. They weren't serving God. There was no true worship there. All of the activities that they had were for the promotion of their selfish pride. And especially at this most sacred time of the year, the Passover time, when there should have been a wonderful celebration of the Messiah who would come and and, and deliver Israel from their sins. Instead of getting that, they got people that wanted to talk about themselves, people that wanted to trumpet themselves and make themselves look good. But they weren't good. Their hearts were cold and black. There was no spiritual life was in them, even though they talked a very good game. They had the outward show. They had the rituals, the ceremonies, their proud speeches. They had the prayers, the meticulous ties. They still had all their feast, and they went through the sacrifices. But all of that was an outward show. There was no heart in it. Now, the same was true in the Old Testament, and that's what brought God's judgment upon the nation. I'd like you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 6. And here we can see the condition of Israel and Judah before Babylon swept down and captured them and destroyed the temple and the city walls. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 11. And Jeremiah, of course, is a prophet who warned and warned and warned what would happen to Israel if they did not turn back to God. And in uh, Jeremiah 6 verse 11 Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding it in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days, and their houses shall be turned unto others with their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. 
And then in verse number 20, he talks about the sacrifices that they still bring. Bring, He says, to what purpose cometh there to me this incense from Sheba and the sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. Why is that? Because they were pretending. Sacrifices were still being made. They were still worshiping at the temple, but their hearts were as wicked as they could be. And so God promised that judgment would come upon them. He said, a nation is going to sweep down upon you and they're going to destroy you. And that's what the Babylonians did. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they took God's people into captivity. Now, that's what Jesus showed happened in the Old Testament with the fig tree. And the object lesson that he's giving here is that Israel is now ripe for another judgment. There's foliage, but there is no fruit. They wore makeup that made them look pretty underneath, but they were actually very, or on top, I should say, but underneath they were actually in the ugliness of sin. And still today, you can say that about Israel. If you're ever able to go to Israel, that's a, that's a wonderful trip. I mean, the land is historic. You'll get goosebumps seeing the places where Jesus walked and talked and all the things that he did. Just a magnificent trip. But you'll also see, when you go into Jerusalem, the Jews standing near the western wall, which is the closest place they can get to where the temple once stood. And they sit there and they bind on the leather phylacteries around their arms and they write scriptures and they put them in little boxes and tie them to their foreheads. And they take their prayers and they stuff them into the cracks of the wall. And that's really something to see. You look at that wall and you see all this paper stuck into the into the cracks of that wall. That's all the prayers that people want to pray over. And then they stand there and they rock back and forth as they read the Torah. And what are they doing? Still showing their false worship. Still showing the wrong kind of worship. They claim to be worshiping Jehovah God, but they know nothing at all about him. And so they make all their oblations, but it's hollow just as it was in the time of Jesus. There is nothing there. They don't worship God in spirit and truth. So here's the reason for the cursing of the tree. It's because of the spiritual condition of Israel. And Jesus was showing what was going to happen to that nation. He says, your house is going to be left unto you desolate. And that's what happened. In AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple, and there hasn't been a temple since. So God left Israel because Israel would not return to him. Now, here it is Monday of the Passion Week, and before the week is through, Jesus would be crucified. He rode into the chairs of the people, but then he was cast out into the crucifixion. And this was Israel standing there all proud in its foliage, but without fruit. And so what God did was he cursed that whole religious system and it withered away. As I said, there is no temple in Jerusalem today. They can't even ascend the temple mount because the Mohammedans, the ones who believe in Islam, they're there and they control that area. Now that's a great history lesson. But what does it mean to us? What does this passage have to say to us today? Well, we're not left out of it because there is something that we learn from it. Here it is. The similar condition 
of modern Christianity. I can tell you that modern Christianity is not dissimilar to ancient Israel. Hypocrisy abounds in the churches of Christendom. Now, there are, there are churches and Christians that have multitude of religious works. They're doing well with their welfare programs and their social activities and feeding the hungry, help for the victims of AIDS and all the other things that they do. There's a lot of activity that goes on in the modern church, but there really isn't a heart for God. And we experience that when people come to Berean, when people come and visit us. They come and they say, well, we're Christians too, and they're amazed that we're still preaching out of the Bible, that we actually do have a Bible here, and that it's a King James Bible. What's wrong with us? Why are we preaching about sin and about hell and about the crucifixion and about Jesus Christ and what he came to do? Why are we still preaching all those things when most churches have abandoned it all? And yet they say, we know Jesus, we worship him, we know something about God, but they don't know anything about God. Now they look good, many of them do. Going to churches around, and you'll see they turn their collars around backwards, and they wear their vestments, and they ascend their altars with their robes and their beads, and they have their incense, and they cross themselves, and they go through all the ceremonies. But all of that is a show for the church crowd. Because they leave the church, and they go back to their drunkenness, and they go back to their fornication, they go back to their lies and to their cheating. They have plenty of foliage, but they don't have any fruit. And so they make it to Mass, but the rest of the week is a mess. They don't know God. They're hypocrites with pretend holiness and righteousness, but their hearts are far from God. Now, you can read Revelation chapter 17 to 19, and you'll find out what happens to that kind of religion. That kind of religion that is for show is corrupt to the core, and it will be destroyed. And sadly, folks... The news is not much better for evangelical churches. The judgment is going to be swift, just like it was on the fig tree. Because people have left the worship of the true God in favor of things that please them. And so they clap, and they sing, and they rock out, and they market their worship to the profane in order to draw them in And all they're doing is covering up something that's very ugly. Now, you know that I love to quote from this this article that was in the newspaper a few years ago. I've used this many, many times. It just sticks in my mind. I say I love to quote it, but at the same time, I'm very sad about it. Because one of the largest churches in Santa Rosa that used to be, or said that they were, affiliated with the Baptist... One of the largest churches in Santa Rosa, there was a young lady that came out of the services and they interviewed her... And the thing that she commented about that church was, I really like this church because it's not too religious. A few weeks ago, on Sunday night, I told you about another hip church in our area that claims still to be affiliated with the Baptist. And they had about a 20-minute sermon on Sunday. They rocked out before that for who knows how long. They got through the sermon in a hurry, and I heard the sermon. It was a milky thing that wasn't worth listening to. And they got through it in a hurry. And you know why? Because they were having line dancing at 1230 on Sunday. That's what they do 
while we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we want to see people saved. At 12.30, you'll probably still be sitting here. I'm sorry to tell you. So we tell people about Christ, but in those churches, there, there, there is no reverence for God. There's fakery. It's, it's pretending that they know Christ, but not really understanding anything of what God demands. And folks, that is a frightening thing, especially when you understand that one day you will stand before God and he knows the condition of your heart. He knows whether you are pretending. You're going to have to stand before him. Now turn back to Matthew 7 for just a minute, if you would, and let's look at some frightening, convicting words that Jesus spoke here. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 18, Jesus said, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now there's Jesus talking about trees again. Trees are important in his ministry, apparently. He uses them as an example. So he says, a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. A fig tree with only foliage is not a good tree. It doesn't bear good fruit. So what do you do with that tree? He answers that in verse 19. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So do you hear what Jesus says? The tree will be cut down. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Only, let's not think about what everybody else does. Let's don't talk about what's going on in somebody else's church. Let's talk about people that are right here. What does your tree look like? What does your tree look like? Look at your life. I mean, you, you claim to be a Christian. Is it a valid claim? You, you claim that you know the Lord. Is there good fruit? Or, or is there just the foliage of going to church on Sunday and sitting in the pew and singing the songs and listening to the prayers? Are you convicted by your hypocrisy because you can go to work on Monday morning and nobody can tell by your life that you've actually been to church on Sunday? What do you do the rest of the week? What about how you tweet, how you, how you post, how you text? Are you living the life of a hypocrite? God knows who you are, and, and he knows if you're making that tree just full of foliage and covering up a lie with all of your makeup. And there are lots of people that are in church that are like that. They go to church on Sunday, they sit in the pews, they sing about Jesus without really knowing who he is. And so they praise him on Sunday, and they crucify him the rest of the week. Now, that's a terrible place to be because the Bible says that kind of religion is cursed. The same Jesus who heals the sin-sick repentant is the same Jesus that cursed the fig tree. And that might just be you if you're a hypocrite and you don't know who Jesus is. So you need to take inventory. Is there, is there just leaves or is there real fruit? Now, let's look at another place in Scripture. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And here Peter tells us about fruitful Christianity and about what God wants. Jesus said, by their fruit ye shall know them. So bad fruit and no fruit are equally serious problems. 
And here's what Peter says about it. And we don't have time to read all of it. We're kind of breaking into uh, this scripture. And I apologize for that. And you, you should read it later and get the whole story here. But let's break in at verse number 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold than perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found, listen, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom thou now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now there he talks about that our faith may be found in praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Remember that question Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, when, the, when, when he comes, will he find faith in Israel? This is the same thing he's asking here. Peter's talking about when he comes, will he find faith in us? And I'm afraid that he'll find very little faith, true faith, in Christian churches. Now, let's go on. I want to hurry here. Uh, I want to talk to you secondly about the next part of the passage, which is fruitfulness brought by faith. Fruitfulness brought by faith. Verse number 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed... And be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Now the disciples were amazed to come back by this tree on Tuesday morning and find that it withered away. Mark tells us that it was the next day and they came by the tree again and the tree was completely dried up. A total loss from top to bottom, clear down to the roots, a total loss. So they wondered, how could that be done? How can this tree wither away so quickly? And Jesus used one word to describe it. He said, faith. This is something that is done by faith. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be done. In all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Jesus said, Take this mountain. And the mountain he's talking about there is the Mount of Olives. He said, you take this mountain, you can cast it into the sea. And if you were ever there, you can stand on the Mount of Olives and off into the distance, you can see the Dead Sea. And he said, you can take this mountain by faith and you can cast it into the sea. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings today. And I don't know what you've been taught about this passage but I can tell you this, Jesus was using hyperbole here. There is no reason to cast the mountain in the sea. There's no purpose in that. But what he's trying to show us here is a very important principle. First of all, he's talking about the power of faith. That faith is a very powerful thing. He means that there is nothing that cannot be done when you pray in faith in the, for the power of faith. Now, for sure... There are people that take this scripture and they teach name it and claim it theology from it. That you can just say, well, if you have enough faith, then anything can be done. You can do anything that you want. Some even go so far as to say that they're little gods. And so you can do what you want. You just name it and you claim it by faith. And usually that, that 
thing that you can claim by faith is preceded by a seed faith offering. And if your mountain is unusually large, $1,000 might do because that preacher needs your money to put fuel in his jet. So you can claim these things by faith, they say. Well, there's a problem with that, folks, because this is not faith in faith. We're not talking about faith in faith here. The The power of faith is no power at all by itself. Faith means nothing by itself. Faith in prayer is no good at all. You're not going to get anywhere if your faith is in prayer. Faith has to be in the one who answers prayer. Faith has to be in the one who is the object of faith. Now, Kenneth Copeland, who is one of the big-name prosperity preachers today, you know what he said about this? When, when, When we say that your faith must be in the object of faith, you know what he said? He said, I don't understand that statement. What do you mean faith and the object of faith? And you know why he doesn't understand that statement? Because he doesn't know God. He doesn't know Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid to tell you right now, that man is not saved. You can't believe what he teaches and be saved. That's impossible. This is not prayer or faith in prayer. It is faith in the God of prayer. S. Lewis Johnson said it well. He said, faith in prayer is one thing, but the prayer of faith in God is another. Faith in prayer is not the same as a prayer of faith. The man who starts out only with faith in prayer puts too much emphasis upon prayer and too little emphasis upon the one to whom the prayer is directed. In fact, the person who speaks about faith in prayer as if he really has faith in prayer is a person who's using prayer as a sort of magic talisman, as a kind of open sesame to get the things he wants, a quick way of getting things he wants from God. And so when he doesn't get what he asks for, he gives up prayer like the heathen who beats his fetish. And fetish means they're like a magical charm. He's like the heathen who beats his magical charm when he falls into trouble and doesn't get what he's supposed to get from that fetish. Prayer is prayer that arises out of faith in God. So the prayer of faith is the prayer of faith in God. Now, when our prayer is directed toward God, rather than your prayer directed toward faith in prayer, that is an entirely different kind of thing. Now here, folks, we are talking about the prayer of faith. What is that? The prayer of faith is a prayer believing in the God of prayer, believing in the God who's able to answer prayer. And if you don't have that, you can have all the faith that you want to talk about, and you can pray all the prayers that you want to talk about, and it's not going to do you any good. S. Lewis Johnson said some good words there. Faith in the God of prayer is one that complies with God's will. People miss this because their will is to get wealthy or their will is to be healthy And sometimes you pray and God says no. Most of the time when it comes to the wealth stuff, he says no. And they don't believe that. But God says no. And let me tell you something. When you have faith in the God of prayer, when he says no, you say, that answer is good. That answer is acceptable to me. That answer is what I need because God always does things well. If, If it's God's will then that's what I want. I don't want anything else but God's will. 
Where are you going to be if you are outside of God's will? No, a prayer of faith accepts God's will in everything that he says. Now, make this, make this note on your listening sheet. This will be your last one. Have faith in God, not faith in prayer. The Bible never tells us to have faith in prayer. It says, have faith in God. So what does God want? He wants real faith. What is it that will keep your fig tree alive? What's going to keep it from being cut down and cast into the fire? Make sure that there's some fruit on that fig tree. Don't be a hypocrite. If you're hiding something, confess that. Bring it to God. Get right with him. James said, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. And listen to this important statement. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. I don't think I've ever heard a prosperity preacher read that part of the verse. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now, you know how you do that? That's when you recognize what sin is in the eyes of God. It's when you recognize what your evil heart truly is. That's when you come in confession and say, God, clean me up. Make me what I am not. Make me according to your will. This is what Jesus did. He went into the temple and he cleansed it and he drove out all the pretenders. But you know something? He was under no delusion that it was going to stay that way because before the week was out, they were right back to the same things that they were doing before. And this is why he cursed the fig tree. He knew what they were going to do. And he said, and because of that, here is what will happen to Israel the physical house of their worship and the spiritual house of their fake religion will be destroyed. And I hope that doesn't happen to you. I mean, I hope that your fig tree of confession, the confession that you have, I hope that it's a good one. I hope that it's not just leaves. You need to repent of your sins. You need to give it all to God. Confess your hypocrisy and the hardness of your heart. Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, one of the great problems of that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and what you hear so much on TV and the claims that they make, they never put obedience to the Lord. They never couple that with God's blessings. You don't actually see holiness in that movement. Look at the most famous preachers that are in it and look at the number of times they've fallen and the sin that they've been in and the cursed way that they live. How many of you have seen Preachers of L.A.? Anybody heard of that show on the Oxygen Channel? I didn't know about it either. And uh, somebody said something about it. I looked it up. And there are these health, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers in L.A. in fornication, in lies, in divorces, in illegitimate children... And they're preaching about how holy they are and how God, the Spirit is moving among them. There's no spirit there but the spirit of the devil, folks. That's the problem with all of that stuff. Now, here's what you can do. Here's what you can do. Wear your makeup to look better. I'm not going to condemn you for that. Wear all the makeup you want to cover up whatever it is that you're trying to cover up. I'll be happy with that. But I'll tell you something you don't want to do. You don't want to have any makeup on your heart. 
You don't want to cover up what's in your heart if you have that sin and that hypocrisy there because there is nothing that will make your heart beautiful but real faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what it's going to take to see God. How about your heart? Is your heart right with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, what a weighty and tremendous message is found in this. And, and uh, there's just no way that we can express all that needs to be said about it and, and just implore people to know what's truly in the heart and to, to evaluate themselves. I mean, our, the, the, you said for us to do this. You said for us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And every person here needs to do that. We may make a profession. We may look good. We may go through all the steps and have all the good things that we show outwardly. But if the heart is not right, then we're going to be in trouble on the judgment day. We're going to stand before you, the one who knows every motive of the heart, everything that's there, and you will know whether there's any figs under the foliage. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts, draw us to you, in full hearts, in full assurance of faith. Cleanse us by your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.